Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 86, Kermit Zarley on Distinguishing Jesus and God. Mr. Kermit Zarley was a successful professional golfer on the PGA Tour and the Champions Tour. Commenting on his unusual name, legendary comedian Bob Hope once referred to him as, quote, the pro from the moon. And so Mr. Zarley has been nicknamed the pro from the moon or moon man. In 1965, Mr. Zarley co-founded the PGA Tour Bible Study Group, which still continues today. A graduate from the University of Houston, in 2001 he received an honorary doctorate from North Park University in Chicago, which has a lecture series named for him. He has a forthcoming article in the Journal of Pentecostal Theology, and he has a forthcoming book called Solving the Samaritan Riddle, Peter's Kingdom Keys Explain Early Spirit Baptism. His published books include The Gospels Interwoven, Palestine is Coming, The Revival of Ancient Philistia, The Third Day Bible Code, Warrior from Heaven, and the Restitution of Jesus Christ. This was initially promoted under the pseudonym Servetus the Evangelical. On his website, he writes that he, quote, has been an evangelical Christian all his adult life and more. He believed in the doctrine of the Trinity for 22 years until reading himself out of it in the Bible, end quote. He blogs on golf, theology, the Bible, and current events at the Kermit Zarley blog on Patheos. Today, I have the privilege of talking with him at his home in Scottsdale, Arizona. Mr. Zarley, welcome to the Trinity's podcast. Hey, Dale. Good to be with you. Mr. Zarley, when and how did you become a Christian? Well, I was born in Seattle, Washington, and I didn't come from a religious home, but my parents had respect for Christianity and for the church because they both come from church-going families. So I had two uncles who were pastors in the Church of the Nazarene, and one of them started to pastor a church that was a mile from my house when I was five years old. And so my mother had me going to that Sunday school, and then my sisters, two sisters, uh, also followed me there. So we grew up going to Sunday school in the Church of the Nazarene. When I was 13 years old, My Sunday school teacher was a student at the University of Washington. I liked him. His name was Gordy. And Gordy had us in our Sunday school memorize 10 verses in the New Testament. And after we'd done that, he asked all of us if anybody would like to stay after Sunday school and talk about these verses further. And I told him I would. And so I happened to be the only one who did that. And so I, my first question to Gordy was, I don't understand this Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace are we saved through faith, not of ourselves, is a gift of God, lest any man should boast. And uh, I said, I try to be a good person, and it seems like that would be enough to be a Christian. But this verse seems to be saying something different from that. And he explained the verse more fully to me. And we had some more conversation. Uh, One was in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 20, 
in which Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man open the door, hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and he and me. And so Gordy said, you can do that in a prayer. We could have prayer together and you could invite Jesus to come into your life. And so I said, I want to do that. So I did with him. We had a prayer. I walked out of Sunday school and I just felt this joy of the Lord as I was walking home. We soon moved away from that church. So for four years, I didn't go to Sunday school anymore until I went to the college at the University of Houston in Houston, Texas. I got into an independent Bible church there right away. And that's where I began my theological education and really learning the Bible. Then I got involved with Campus Crusade for Christ. I attended a crusade retreat during the semester break in which the pastor of my church and Hal Lindsey, who was also a member of our church, who wrote Late Great Planet Earth, they were the keynote speakers. And the first night, Lindsey spoke on Bible prophecy, and it really turned me on to Bible prophecy. And that night I got into a prayer marathon that just happened and 12 students, all of us young fellows, had this all-night prayer vigil. And during it, somebody said, why don't we each make a commitment to God of something that we're going to do for God the rest of our lives? And so when it came my turn to pray, and incidentally, this is the first time I had ever had prayer with other people. So it was all kind of new to me even though I'd had this experience of going to Sunday school growing up. And so when it came my turn, I said to God, I'm going to uh, read Bible prophecy and try to learn it the rest of my life. And so that came true. And so now I've had six books published. My seventh one is coming out this year. And three of those books are on eschatology, Bible prophecy. Hearing you talk and getting to know you just a little bit uh, recently, I've heard you mention a number of well-known evangelical people that you've known or had conversations with. Reminds me of a statement somewhere Paul says that he's a Pharisee of Pharisees. You're kind of an evangelical of evangelicals going back uh, at least to your, what was it, junior high or high school uh-huh. days when you were born again. Uh-huh. What does the term evangelical mean to you, and do you consider yourself uh, an evangelical to this day? I do. Dale, I consider myself an evangelical today. I've always been an evangelical since back in my, at least my late teens. 
I've been in the independent Bible church movement ever since then and still am. Uh, so I still worship with evangelicals. I'm not accepted as an evangelical by a number of people because I had a change in my Christology. But in my opinion, that doesn't disqualify me to be an evangelical. And of course, there are a lot of people who disagree with that. An evangelical to me is a person who believes that everyone needs to have a personal experience with God in which they believe in Jesus dying on the cross for their sins. And they believe that God raised him from the dead so that he died for my sins and I own him as my Lord and Savior. Lord, I mean by that, that to some extent you try to follow the teachings of Jesus. And so it's those two things about Jesus, Savior and Lord. And I would add to that, that as far as Israel goes, the Jewish people, Jesus came to be their Messiah. And so Jesus is the Messiah. And that's why we call him Jesus Christ. Christ means Messiah. Now your change of views about Christology are in your book, The Restitution of Jesus Christ. And we'll get to that in a minute, but what first led you, Mr. Zarley, to question the usual evangelical ways of thinking and talking about Jesus and God? When I was born again at age 13, I believed in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Then when I went to college and got in this Bible church, I was first taught the doctrine of the Trinity. I didn't question it. I believed in the doctrine of the Trinity. I was a Trinitarian Christian for 22 years. But after 20 years, in 1980, I was sitting in my study room reading my Bible, and I was reading Jesus' Olivet Discourse. And I came to the verse in which Jesus said, concerning his second coming, that no one knows that hour, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, meaning himself, but only the Father. So only the Father knows when Jesus was going to return. That's what he's saying. Now, I knew that verse very well. I knew the Olivet Discourse quite well, the whole discourse. Because, as I said, I was specializing in eschatology. And so I had been taught, along with the doctrine of the Trinity, the hypostatic union of Christ, that Jesus has two natures, a human nature and a divine nature. And I was taught that when we read in the New Testament, Gospels, about what Jesus said and about what he did, he said and did those things in one of his two natures, meaning in the power of one of those two natures, either his human nature or his divine nature. And in the case of his Olivet Discourse, when he said he didn't know the time of his return, he was saying that in his human nature. He did know it in his divine nature, but he didn't know it in his human nature. Now, 
That had never been a problem to me. But this particular day, when I read it, all of a sudden, I believe a light came on inside my mind. And I said to myself, that makes Jesus look like a liar. He says he doesn't know the time of his return. But according to my theology that I've been taught, he does know the time of his return in his divine nature. So he's saying in his human nature he doesn't know, but in his divine nature he does know. I said, that makes Jesus look like a liar, and you could question his mental state. And so that threw me into a study about who is this Jesus? Is Jesus God or isn't he? And in a, after about two and a half years, in 1982, I was playing in the U.S. Open golf tournament, my favorite tournament, and I was playing on my favorite golf course in the world, and that's Pebble Beach in Monterey, California. And so this is the top of my game here, and I should be concentrating 100% on my job here of playing pro golf. But I was staying in the home of a Christian family who had a theological library. And they had the library in the room that I was staying in. And every night when I'd come home from the golf course, my family wasn't with me that week, I was reading theological books in there. And I got into Lewis Berry Schaefer's Systematic Theology, eight volumes. Now, I had a connection to Dallas Theological Seminary, and he was the one who founded it. And so I was reading Schaefer's Theology. I was reading the president of the seminary at this time, John Wolvard's Theology, on who is Jesus, who is God. And I came to the clear decision right then on Saturday night of that tournament at three o'clock in the morning in much prayer that no, the New Testament does not say Jesus is God. And so that's where I made my decision in much trembling because I knew what I was getting into. I knew something about the history of this. And so I made this decision. It was a life-changing decision for me. I knew that I would undergo persecution from Christians and from my Christian friends. I knew this, but I made the decision that either I have to stand for what I think is true or not, and I made that decision right then. Now, the whole thing wasn't totally clear to me. I still needed to do a lot more study because I had two main scriptures that I called barriers. And those were John 1.1c, which is traditionally translated, and the word was God, referring to the word of God, which in verse 14 it says, took flesh and became Jesus. That verse and Thomas's confession in John 20.28, 20, in which he said to Jesus, my Lord and my God. Those two verses still hung me up. The, what I had done was, in this study, I had first gone to the Christian bookstore and I bought a red-letter New Testament. That means that all of the words of Jesus are in red. 
and I wanted to only read the words of Jesus. And what was I looking for? The main thing I was looking for is where does he say he is God? And so I discovered he doesn't say it any place. And so that was my first enlightenment right there. But eventually, two and a half years later, I made this decision. And even after that, it took me four or five years before I came to an understanding of those two passages of Scripture in the Gospel of John that don't say that Jesus is God. But even after that, I still believed in the preexistence of Jesus. And it took me just over 10 years before what I call I gave up the preexistence. And so, no, I came to believe over a, a period of time there that Jesus is not God, is a human being, fully a human being, but he did not pre-exist. And so he came into this world just like the rest of us humans do, except for one thing. He had a supernatural conception. And so that's what we call the virgin birth. So I do believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. I believe he lived a perfect life and that qualified him to go to the cross and die for our sins as the Lamb of God who takes away sin of the world. So when you say you gave up the view that Jesus is God, do you mean you gave up the view that they are one in the same, that they're numerically one, like that Jesus is just God himself? Can you say a little bit more about what it was that you thought was mistaken in light of the Bible? Yes. First of all, the Bible tells us that God is one, the Shema. And I understand that to mean numerically one, so that when we speak of the God of the Bible as being one, uh, th that means he is one individual. Now, when we go to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah says, uh, he quotes God, and he says, there is only one God, and the God of the Bible is that God. There are no other gods. And so, uh, that's what I believe. And Jesus came into this world as the Son of God. He is not God. In the Christian tradition, the church eventually decided that Jesus being the Son of God means that he's God. Well, I think that was an error. I think that we should understand Jesus as being the Son of God from the Old Testament, use of the term, the expression, Son of God. And so Son of God in the Old Testament is applied to angels, it's applied to humans, to men, it's applied to the King of Israel. This is how we should understand Jesus being the Son of God. And what does it mean 
therefore, to be the Son of God the way the Old Testament uses that language. It means that that person has a relationship with God, so just as I have a son, a physical son, and he's my son, and that's the way we should understand Jesus as being the Son of God. He has a special relationship with God. So because he has a special relationship with God, it's an interpersonal relationship, so then he's not God himself. Right. He's somebody else. Now, there was a, a pretty big time gap uh, to when you initially started changing your mind about this and when you wrote your book, The Restitution of Jesus Christ. And then when you did publish it leading up to that, you kind of uh, advertised it as being by Servetus the Evangelical. <laughs> so why the gap and why the pseudonym? You dropped it about as soon as you published it, didn't you? Um, I dropped it uh, 18 months later. Okay, so it was out under a pseudonym for a while. So why, why did you do that? Okay, uh, the reason for the pseudonym came about from two people. My son caddied for me on the senior tour. The name of that tour became changed to the Champions Tour. And so I kept this view about my Christological change to myself a lot. The reason for that was that right away when I was expressing myself about this, I began to tell that people were not understanding what I was saying. And even if I got to the point where I thought I was articulating my viewpoint pretty well, they still weren't understanding it. And I concluded that it was because of their indoctrination. And so I became very concerned about being misrepresented. Now, when I said that I made my decision in 1982 about this, one of my closest friends asked me, in fact, we were in ministry together, Christian ministry. He asked me to go around and see three scholars, Christian scholars, which I did. And even those gentlemen weren't alarmed at what I was saying. You know, at that time I wasn't as articulate about it as I later became. But I kept it to myself quite a bit, except I told my closest friends on the senior tour, my closest Christian friends, in the tour chapel. And some of them started giving me a wide berth, standoffish. My son saw this, and so he understood what I was going through. Eventually, there became a time he knew about my researching and writing a book about this subject. And so there came a time when he said, Dad, I don't think you should put your name on this book. I think you should put a pseudonym on there. Well, only a few months after that, a friend of mine, Professor Scott McKnight, in the Chicago area, had become a close friend of mine. And he started to tell me the same thing. And he had read the, the draft of the manuscript. And so that's two close people to my, me in my life. And I started to think, is God speaking to me here? And so 
I was thinking about it for a few months, and then all of a sudden it came to me, Michael Servetus. Michael Servetus is one of the most tragic stories about the early Protestant Reformation. He was a brilliant Spaniard who came from a Catholic family, a multi-talented person, an intellectual. He had been a Trinitarian. He went to college, the University of Paris. It was at school that he started to read the Bible because in those days, the Bible wasn't accessible to most Catholic people. And he read in the New Testament, there isn't any Trinity. The word Trinity is not in the New Testament. And he said the teaching of the Trinity itself is not there. Well, what is the teaching of the Trinity? Well, it is that God is one essence and that he consists as three persons. At least in the English world, that's how we explain it, three persons. And who are these persons? God, whom Jesus always called the Father, so we call him God the Father, and then Jesus, and then the Holy Spirit. And that's the three persons of the Trinity. And that's why we say the triune God. And so, Servetus wrote a book about this when he was 20 years old, On the Heirs of the Trinity. And he was much persecuted. He had subjected himself to the possibility of being tried by the state. Because in those days, the European countries had the unification of church and state. And so they had theological laws. You could not teach or write against the doctrine of the Trinity and so forth. And so he sort of went into hiding and changed his name. For about 20 years, he became a medical doctor. And then later on, he wrote another book and that eventually got him tried by the state in Switzerland. And John Calvin led the opposition, in fact, got him arrested. Uh, by the Catholic Inquisitors, and he was burnt at the stake. And so I decided to call myself Servetus the Evangelical, and that's the pseudonym that went on the book. book was published in 2008. So it's interesting that you had two close friends who it seems like they were afraid for you, and maybe that increased your own fear about what the consequences would be. Do you think that more generally Christians are afraid to really dig into what the Bible says about Jesus and God? And if so, why? Very much so. First of all, for most Christians, going to church is a social thing. It's a social gathering. You have friends in your church. This becomes a very important part of a Christian's life, the social connection with Christians. If you change a theological belief of your own that is against what most Christians believe, especially if it is very important to most Christians, such as the doctrine of the Trinity, you're gonna undergo persecution 
from Christian people. And I've experienced a lot of it. And so you contemplate that before you make this decision to adopt some other way of thinking. And I have friends that are not willing to make that change only because of that rejection. Mr. Zarley, how did you go about writing your book, The Restitution of Jesus Christ? Well, it, it had to do with what I just said about being misunderstood. And so I didn't like it that when I tried to share with somebody what I was now believing, that they weren't understanding me. And if they expressed what I just said, they were saying, of course, in their own words, and they oftentimes misrepresented what I said. Not purposely, they just weren't, they just weren't getting it most of the time. Were they thinking that you were saying that Jesus was just like another teacher or guru, something like that? How were they mishearing what you were telling them? Do you remember specifically? So I don't know if I can if I can remember specifics. You know, my one of my closest friends was a former Mormon. He grew up a Mormon in in Mormon country. Mormons have a belief in the Trinity. They kind of change it around a little. And so it's not really known as the orthodox doctrine of the Trinity. And so when I first spoke to him about this, he said, you sound just like a Mormon to me. <laughs> I don't believe what Mormons do. However, at that time, I said I wasn't that articulate about it. I also had not given up the preexistence of Jesus. It's just that I just could be misunderstood. I'll give you another example. I won't tell you who this is, but this was an important individual for me to try to maintain a good relationship with. I told him that I wanted to discuss this with him so that he at least would understand what my position is about this, and he refused to do it. He says, I know what you believe. You're an Aryan. Well, I wasn't an Aryan at all. But he knew something about Arianism, and so made this assumption that I'm an Arian. This happened a lot in church history to people who moved away from the orthodox teaching that Jesus is God, the so-called incarnation, or the doctrine of the Trinity. And people would be called Arians in the history of the United States. We had some of our leaders, even pre early presidents, who were deists. And so, you know, if you tried to express yourself like I would about this, 
your lie will be called a deist. And so you could be called all different kinds of things, but those might not be the correct representations of your viewpoint. And so I didn't want to be misrepresented, and I decided I'm going to keep this matter to myself until I get something in writing. And so it took 28 years from the time I started writing this book until it got published in 2008. Now, as far as my pseudonym goes, I did not reveal myself as the author of this book. People only knew that somebody wrote this anonymously and they used a pseudonym, Servetus Evangelical. The book was published on the birthday of Michael Servetus, which was September 29th. This is also another reason why I think God was involved in this. That's my birthday. So I have the same birthday as Michael Servetus. And so Michael Servetus' 500th anniversary of his birthday was going to be 2011. And so I was going to uh, reveal my identity three years later on the 500th anniversary of Michael Servetus' birthday. There was another reason for that. I wrote a book entitled The Third Day Bible Code. And so three, the number three, is important in what I've done in my writings. And I could go into more detail about this, but I won't. I also became an inventor six years ago. I have an invention called the Triangle Book. So anyway, my patent attorney, I told him, I don't want to reveal myself as the author of this book. And I was publishing the book in my triangle book format. And he said, well, with the government patent office, you have to reveal your identity. Or we can get around that, but it's going to cost you about ten or $15,000. And so I said, not going there. And so I wasn't able to keep my plan and come out with my identity on the 500th anniversary of Michael Servetus' birthday. And so I went ahead and revealed myself 18 months later. Now, it's a book that uh, it's organized really more around the deity of Christ than around the Trinity per se. And it's really focused on the text because as an evangelical, that is your authority. You don't put authority into councils unless just that it's because they're correctly summarizing the text, right? You take a, that's kind of a classical reform view. Yeah, okay, councils are fine if they're really revealing the true meaning of the text. What I thought was impressive about the book is just the, the range of uh, theologians and textual scholars and so on. It was clear that you had done a ton of homework and you must have uh, got yourself a big theological library in those two decades. Is that right? Yes. The book is 600 pages long. I cite over 400 scholars, many of them distinguished scholars in their fields, most of them biblical scholars. The book uh, has 100 pages of history of the development of the identity of Jesus in Christianity. So it goes through the 2,000 year history. 
Then the rest of the book deals with critical texts in the Bible on this subject. I include both texts that I believe support my viewpoint, main texts, and then I deal with all of the many texts that people who believe that Jesus is God, the texts that they would cite. There are nine major New Testament texts that have been used to try to support the view that Jesus in the New Testament is called God. Uh, those texts start with the one I mentioned, John 1.1c, then John 1.18, which is a textual, uh, uh, has to do with the Greek text. Then there is John 20.28. 20, John 10.30 is not a major text. That's where Jesus said, I am the Father of one. Now that was used by Athanasius in the fourth century as a main text for him. But in biblical scholarship in the 20th century, no. The main scholars who've written on this subject, they don't include that as a major text. Uh, even two, uh, two main Catholic New Testament scholars, Raymond Brown and Joseph Fitzmaier, uh, they say, no, that doesn't support the doctrine of the incarnation of Jesus at all. And so after that, you have texts that have grammatical issues. That's Romans 9.5, Titus 2.13, 1 John 5.20, 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, 1 Thessalonians 1.12. All of those texts have a grammatical issue in them. And so if you look in different English Bibles, you'll find they translate one way in which it says Jesus is God, and another translation will translate in a way in which it doesn't say Jesus is God, and two persons are in view. That's called the, I call it two-person view. It's talking about God the Father and Jesus. But in the other translations, it'll identify Jesus as God. The obvious place to look for whether or not the Bible teaches that Jesus is God is just to see, does it call him God? And there's only a handful, roughly nine passages that have been alleged to say that. And some of them turn out to be textual problems or translation problems, so they're not really uncontroversial. And then I think you would say, because I've read some of your blog posts and read the book, you would say that the ones that are cited in John are uh, interpretive problems that the Logos isn't supposed to be the pre-human Jesus. There is one I can think where I think the Son is called God that's probably not controversial. Hebrews chapter 1 is quoting a psalm and it says, Of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So what about that? Isn't Jesus called God in Hebrews 1.8? Yes, that's a good question. As you said, it's a quotation of Psalm. You have to ask yourself, okay, is the author of Hebrews identifying Jesus as God here? Well, there's a question you've got to ask before that. Is the psalmist calling somebody God? Who is he calling God? And so he's speaking of the king of Israel. That's what most scholars think. And so... If that psalmist is calling the king of Israel God, then what does the author of Hebrews, what is he saying? 
Well, of course, a Jew would say, no, the psalmist is not calling the king God. And so there are different ways to look at that text. What is the, he saying about the king? And so I think that we should understand the author of Hebrews as saying the same type of thing that the psalmist said. And now I would take it beyond just verse 8. We need to ask, what is the author of Hebrews trying to say in his book about Jesus? So let's look at the overall view of what is the author's purpose. Okay, he is arguing for the superiority of Jesus over angels. He argues vehemently in chapter 1 that Jesus, who was made lower than angels as a human being, has now been made greater than angels, and it's God who has made him greater than angels, so that when Jesus ascended to heaven after his resurrection, God invited Jesus to sit down on God's throne with him in heaven. And so this is a very important text that is the most quoted Old Testament text in the New Testament, Psalm 110.1, in which God, Yahweh, says to Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, who is that psalmist? It's King David. And so David is calling this person Adonai, my Adonai, my Lord. So the Lord, which is Yahweh, Yahweh said to my Lord, David says, sit at my right hand. And so Christians believe that that happened at Jesus' ascension, and he was exalted in heaven by sitting down with the Father on his throne. And so the, the very next verse after the one I quoted to you says, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness, therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So the one addressed, yes, is addressed as God, but not as the one God, but a, quote, God who has a God, who has the one God over him. As you said, originally it could be a king, and then now it's applied to the risen and exalted Messiah. Right. And then he goes on and he says, Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than Melchizedek. And I already said, he's saying Jesus is greater than angels. And so that's what the author of Hebrews is trying to do. He's trying to lay down the greatness of Jesus. If he's trying to do that and Jesus is God, why didn't he come straight out and say, hey, Jesus is God. That is far greater to say about a person than to say that he's the Messiah of Israel that he's greater than angels, that he's greater than Moses. Yeah, the whole exercise would be kind of strange. I mean, why would you set off arguing that he's greater than angels if he's God himself? Of course God himself is greater than angels. Right. That's, if that was part of standard Christian teaching, you wouldn't need to get into that argument. And of course, he's held up later in the book as a model of faith, it seems, and uh, taught to be a mediator between God and man. And God's not his own mediator. Somebody else is the mediator yeah. between God and, and you and I. So 
Yeah, context. Who would have thought that context was important to interpreting <laughs> the Bible? Right. Mr. Zarley, you already said that, yes, you consider yourself an, ev- an evangelical Christian. How else would you describe your own theology now? What term do you use? I call myself a one-God Christian. When I entered the Army, the sergeant looked at my paperwork, and he saw in there for religion, because they're going to put this on my dog tag, Christian. And he says, Zarley, what's your religion? I said, Christian, sir. He says, Zarley, you can't be a Christian. You've got to either be a Catholic, a Baptist, or a Presbyterian, or something like that. And I said, sir, I'm none of those things. I'm a Christian. That's what I've always called myself. And I do that because Christian is in the New Testament three times. They started calling people who were followers and believers of Jesus Christian. And so I continue to call myself a Christian. It's just that when I changed from being a Trinitarian to believing that God is numerically one, that's when I eventually, after so many years, started to say, well, I don't want to call myself Unitarian. And the reason for that is, first of all, I'm not identifying myself that clearly as to what I do believe, because I believe the way to God is through Jesus. So we need to believe in Jesus to get to God. And that's why I still like to call myself Christian. And so I just said to myself, I'm going to call myself a one God Christian. That's what I always call myself. Mr. Zarley, thank you for talking with us. All right. This week's thinking music has been Pompeii from the album Ashes by Josh Woodward. You can find the links for this tune and its album at the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. Do you enjoy listening to the Trinities podcast? There are four ways you can show us some love in return. First, share the blog post for this episode on whatever social media you use. Second, you can leave us a rating and a brief review in the iTunes store and at Stitcher. Third, you can donate to the cause by clicking the orange donate buttons to the right of any blog post. Fourth, you can send us some brief to-the-point audio feedback for possible incorporation into a future episode. We would love to hear your question or your comment in your voice. The upload link for your audio file is on the blog post for any episode. To sum up, you can share, rate, donate, and talk back. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.